This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies ed tech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and it helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of different tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com forward slash B-E. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E. We're proud to be sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, win time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and much more. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit MyFlexLearning.com forward slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's myflexlearning.com forward slash B-E. Educational inequities too often go unchallenged and uncorrected. Today, we're going to talk about some of these inequities, and we're going to talk about the real steps that can be taken to make a difference. You're listening to the Authority Podcast on the B Podcast Network, and I'm pleased to be joined by the authors of Teaching for Racial Equity, which was recently named a 2022 Excellence in Equity Award winner from the American Consortium for Equity in Education. My guests are Tanya B. Perry, Stephen Zemmelman, and Katie Smith, and Teaching for Racial Equity is published by Stenhouse. Everybody, welcome to the Authority. Thank you. Thank you. To kind of kick us off, the subtitle to this book is Teaching for Racial Equity, Becoming Interrupters. And a lot of times we start our episodes here talking about some of these critical terminologies that really unlock our understanding of the book. We've recently had Mike Gaskell talking about radical principles. We had Tanya Sheckley talking about rebel educators. And it really gives us a view, I think, into the mindset you take when you start to read these books. So I want to talk about this term interrupters and where it comes from and why it was important to start with this book. Tanya, can you give us an intro there? Well, thank you, first of all, for having us, Ross. We really appreciate the opportunity to be here and just share with you you our work. So interrupters, we were doing some work and looking at some models, and Yolanda Sillery-Reese has this model for racial literacy development, and its highest stage is being an interrupter. And I think the three of us together began to interrogate that and began to talk more about what that really was. And I I guess they agree with me when we brought it to the table that this is something that we could hang our hats on, that this really represented what we were trying to say and what we wanted to try to get across. So an interrupter is someone who's not with the status quo, but really thinks critically about how to proceed and what he or she or they want to do in order to make a difference in this world. And being an interrupter, and my colleagues can pipe in as well, is 
being able to really examine and think about how you want to stop practices or have people think differently about practices that they may consider just normal practices that are not really good and based in love and hope and what is good for our society. So an interrupter, I would think, is someone who constantly gets you to redirect, right? Someone who challenges you and says, well, have you thought about it this way? Or perhaps there's another perspective, or have you investigated another way of looking at something? That's what an interrupter does. And it's not, necess- it's not in opposition to being a disruptor. It's actually additive, right? That we can interrupt each and every day and refocus even our own thinking when we're challenged. A disruptor is also needed in society. That's when you really need to stop a practice. But it it doesn't mean that an interrupter can't exist with a disruptor, right? Or we can't be an interrupter and a disruptor. But we were talking about things in a classroom with our colleagues, having conversations with other people, working with our students. You know, what is it to be an interrupter? What is it to constantly critically think about your position the position of others and help redirect other people to consider other ways of thinking. And that's what we were thinking when we talked about being an interrupter. Do you want to add to that, Katie, in any way? No, Tanya, I think you've really reflected all the things that we've talked about for the past, what, four years <laughs> as we've right. worked together on, on this book and on this work. And as if each of us worked on it individually before that. Steve, is there anything else that we need to add in here? I feel like it's a good word for implying that it's important to have a conversation, to talk it through. Disrupt sounds more turning the tables over, and sometimes that's needed. But a lot of times for change, what needs to be involved is a conversation. And interruption means really saying, wait a minute, can we talk about this another way? Yeah, and and Tanya, when you were defining the word, you used the term investigate. Right. You mentioned critical thinking. Critical thinking fits into some of the key concepts of the book of critical love, critical humility, critical reflection, right? And then interruption and really approaching the work and really making sure that it's approached correctly. And we're going to get into a lot of these terms, but I wanted to touch on the critical humility piece here. And then we're going to move into some of the other pieces. Stephen, maybe you can help our listeners understand that term and where it comes from. And you could even talk about how it fits into the broader framework, but we certainly will touch on a lot of these topics throughout our conversation. Sure. I think what part of what humility is about is realizing that each of us grows up in a particular setting, particular family, community, school, and so forth, and that there are many other such settings that can be very different. And so you can't automatically assume that the way you've grown up to see things is going to be the same as your students or fellow colleagues. And so humility to me means realizing there's a lot you don't know. It kind of bothers me when people talk about being woke, because that implies you know, oh, I'm really knowledgeable now. I really know the right way to do things. But it's like, wait a minute. For all of us, there's a limitation to what we know. And we make assumptions about that. And humility means realizing that they're only your assumptions. And you've got to learn 
where your students come from, what their lives are like, what they're really interested in, what matters to them. And you can't assume that you know that in advance. You probably don't, no matter how empathetic you are. There's not a lot you don't know. And once you realize that, you can really move to be more effective by finding out why are these students behaving the way they are? What is that about? What is it in their background that I need to understand better so I can support them? To me, that's humility. And working on this book was really important for me because it helped me realize how much I, as Tanya has put it, she'd said to me once in a conversation, Steve, you are living in a bubble. And it's true. That's not evil or bad. It's just a fact of life. And humility means understanding that. We talked about that self-work that you need to initially reflect and really work on your own knowledge and understanding and then go out and seek the people who are going to collaborate with you, right? And as long as we have an openness to understanding the challenges that Tanya, you've referred to it as finding your people, right? And going out and finding those people who are really going to be your collaborators there. Well, there's three of you and you wrote this book together. Part of that was how you came together to write the book. Katie, we'll start with you on this and you all may have something to put into this conversation, but how did you go through that process of combining your knowledge to be able to put out this book? Steve and I are the co-directors of the Illinois Writing Project. And Tanya has been the director of the Red Mountain Writing Project. Both projects are parts of the National Writing Project Network. And so we three had known each other from the National Network for a long time. And as I said, Steve and I have worked together in the Illinois Writing Project for more than two decades. <laughs> Let's put it that way. And so Steve and Tanya actually really began the work on this book. And I was very grateful and am very grateful to have become a part of the thinking process and the writing process and the work after the work had already begun. I have to credit my two collaborators here for getting the work started and getting things going and then for being so gracious to ask me to be part of the group as well. In the ways that we worked, during the period of time that we were writing on the book and working on the book, we met first by phone and then by Zoom at least once a week for three years <laughs> for the, the whole time that we worked together. And those writing and thinking sessions every week really have become an important part of my life. And I think that's true for my colleagues as well. And the book is out in circulation now, and this is great. And we still meet because it helps us all think together. I think one of the things that I would credit my colleagues for is creating a situation where the collaborators on the book do have a variety of different backgrounds, different ages, different race and ethnicity, different linguistic background. And I think that kind of distinguishes our book from some others. We see that as a positive, and it also meant that we have been doing the work of trying to figure out how to create equity in our own contexts as we have gone along. So Steve and Tanya, I don't know, do we want to talk more a little about even before I came on board? I want to be upfront here that all of us have racial issues 
lurking somewhere. Not that that's an evil thing. It's kind of a fact of life in the society we're in. And so it's natural that it would come up that Tanya would be wondering as Katie was joining this, is this going to be two white people ganging up on the African-American scholar? And I want to put this out honestly. That was an honest concern on her part. And we had to think really carefully about how we were going to work together so that we would not allow that situation to happen. I feel that Tanya was always very gracious and courageous in pointing out times when one of us, I know especially for myself, might be speaking in a way that was maybe not so sensitive in terms of some of the issues and some of aspects of our relationship. So we had to really work on that. And it's not something that I had fully thought through when we started. And Tanya had to call me on that. And that was crucial for being able to move ahead, that we really had a clear understanding among ourselves and also be open to having any one of us interrupt one of the others to say, wait a minute, Have you thought about what you just said? Have you thought about what that really means? But in the long run, that helped us to work together and also helped us to try to model the kind of conversations and struggles that we're inviting teachers to take, that we're not above this all. We're not woke. We're struggling like everybody else, but we can share that so that people can see that, okay, maybe it's possible to work together. And the conversations in the book are quite frank, which is important to a reader, right? To see that this is not meant to make it look easy or that it's all figured out, right? There may be an alternate timeline in which any of you may have written a version of this book on your own, right? It would not have been the same book. It would have have been lacking in some ways, but through research and reading and talking to people, you may have done that, but it's not just the optics of having a a multicultural author team it's that there's things that you learn from each other by working on it that you became stronger in your own practice you obviously ended up writing a better book and came across the ideas that would really impact education from your perspective tanya what was in that process of learning and articulating at once Going through this process has definitely been a process for the three of us. And I know I use the same word twice because I can't think of anything else. It's a process because we are growing, we're learning, we're developing as we continue this journey. And there's always something to learn, right? There's always a place for us to grow. And that at any time that any of us say that we've got the complete answer, then I think that means that we've probably shut down and not really interested in learning anymore because there's so much to learn. I would tell you that it's not necessarily in the book, but I think it's reflected in the book. Yeah, one thing that I learned and that I think that my colleagues and I have talked about indirectly is capacity for resilience. And we've talked about through looking at our teachers and having them tell their stories and also the experience of the teachers of color and the students of color and activism. This idea of what it takes to really think about who you want to be, how you want to interrupt, what is it that the practices that you want to place into your own journey 
as you start to become more active. And one thing that we haven't talked about yet, which I eventually probably will, is that we have students in the book. So we have ourselves, then we have teachers and their journey and what they do, and then we have students and looking at how we all move forward. But I think one core piece is this idea of resilience and perseverance and still wanting the world to be a better place than we left it, which is why the foundation of this is critical love. You couldn't then go into humility and reflection, then doing the self-work, and then also archaeology of ourselves and then the interruption phase, because it takes all of that combined with continued pushing forward to make an impact. I think that's part of what I discovered during this journey that no matter what it was that the three of us talked about or what we discovered, it's almost like we had a pact together that we're going to persevere. I can remember one day I told Steve, that's not who you are. He said, yes, it is. I said, I think you should write this. He said, I'm not writing that because that's not who I am. And I said, I don't know if you remember that, Steve. I do. <laughs> I don't remember what the issue was, but I remember the moment. And the, but the <laughs> idea is this is not easy work. And these conversations are not easy conversations. They are very much ingrained in who we are. So it's important for us to be able to have the perseverance and the resilience to move forward because you can't stop just when you hit a block because you will hit a block. But it's really important for us to be able to move forward. And that's something that I think that I appreciate about us that I think is a key theme throughout the book, even for our students and teachers. We all remain resilient and persevere through the work and we're still doing it even though the book is out. The students show up in those aha moments, right? And the nature of the work is that it's challenging, it's difficult, and it's also beautiful. And it's all those things together. And understanding that educators, depending on where they are, what day it is, their work period doesn't always feel beautiful. <laughs> but it's those times when we know that we've really made that connection to the students. And it's really working that you see the evidence of your efforts and okay, this is what it's about. It's something that we should as like aspire to for any student, right? for any student going through adolescence and growing up. It's like, man, that's a powerful thing for me to not only accept who I am, but to embrace it and to want to be and want to show it and want to learn who you are, right? Tanya, if you want to talk a little more about that, Katie and Steve, if you have examples of those aha moments that are featured in the book or ones that you just experienced personally to say, oh yeah, that's a light bulb went off that day. I want to just go back to this matter of our learning just real quickly, because I want to make something clear. If I was learning, and I hope I was, I don't want to imply that Tanya had to be my teacher all the time. It's not a fair burden to put on a person of a different racial background to teach me what I need to know. That's my job. So I want to make that clear that if there hopefully was learning going on, it wasn't like I had to depend on Tanya all the time, although she's wonderful about helping us understand things. I think that's important because too often people of color find that they're being asked to teach everybody else. That fails to put the responsibility on the people who need to learn. So I just want to make that clear. I wouldn't want it to seem like somehow this was great for us because Tanya was the teacher, because that's not quite how it worked. But the other thing about it is that's a contradiction in a way, as difficult as this is, and Tanya was talking about resilience. There's a lot of joy in this work, and it's strange. It's kind of contradictory that it's so troubling in ways, and yet for me, 
it's been one of the most joyous and important things in my life. Yeah. Does anybody have any examples that stand out of that joy, right? of those moments, those times of joy? I think there's many examples in the book of just good teaching that mm-hmm. our teacher contributors engaged in that brought them joy and brought their students joy and greater connection mm-hmm. to perhaps prescribed curriculum and help them tailor the curriculum to the needs and interests and and excitements, if that's a word, of the students that they were teaching. I can think for I can think of a couple. One is when Adelphio was having a hard time reaching a couple of kids in his class. And he, well, surprise, surprise, talked to the family members, talked to the adults in the kids' lives about what do I need to do? How can I make a better connection with your child? And no matter the context, engaging family members can help us as teachers to connect better and better with our students. Tina, who talked about when she began to realize that her students had their own identities as readers and writers, right? Not something that she prescribed to them, but things that they really brought to their reading and writing. And that as a younger teacher made a huge impact on her. The student who said, you are asking me the wrong questions. You need to not ask me well, why don't I read something else? You need to ask me, well, what is it about this book that you're reading it over and over? And and so by listening to her students, by listening to the family members, Shantarius realizing that the books that she had in her classroom were not speaking to her students and she needed to find other ways to connect with them. Those kinds of examples in the book as a person who taught high school kids for 20 years before turning to the university for the past 20 years. I can think of some of those examples from my life. And I think as teachers, we learn those same lessons over and over again that help us connect with the young people whom we are entrusted to serve. I love the examples. It's kind of nostalgic to some extent. That's going down memory lane and thinking about all the iterations we went through in order to produce the book. And then it is joyful to think about the product itself and being able to give voice to the teachers and the students who are part of this work. And I've got to give a shout out to Jordan, who's a student mm-hmm. who put together something for her school that was incredible, but was asked by her administrator, everybody you picked is black. Why? Everybody's a person of color. Why did you do that? And that's stung. This is an African-American woman or a student at the time who was trying to create an experience for a school and that she had spent months developing. Prior to this, there had been another activity just like it, but everybody who was coming as a speaker was white and there were no questions asked about that. You know, that was a defining moment for her as a young activist and as an African-American young scholar and how the approaches were right there in her face and everything was so different for one group versus another group. But it was also eye-opening, I think, for the administrator, right? That's part of equity work. There's got to be there who will ask you and interrupt your own thinking and your own Mm -hmm. practice, right? Somebody's got to redirect you and ask you the question that kind of shakes you out of your usual pattern. And then be able to help you to look at yourself and address some of your own patterns and ask those hard questions of yourself 
And that's what she did. That's another example that's really good for all of us is there our students can also be the leaders in this area as well. We're all right. learning together. But our students have a lot of things they can also teach us as well as our other colleagues if we're willing and we're open to having these kinds of discussions. All of us can be interrupted. A student can interrupt a teacher and help redirect. A teacher can help a student. A family can help a teacher, right? It's all reciprocal here because we're all looking for a way in which we can have a better society, where we can have a more equitable society. And everybody can begin to question and think about critically, what is it going to take? And what, who do we need to be in order for us to get to that space where equity does exist? You know, so I was real proud of Jordan. Yeah, there's the results of the work, like that old saying, success doesn't happen overnight because you don't see all the work that went into it before it happened. And if you read some of the stories from the educators in this book and what they did in their class and you read them completely out of context, not as part of this book, but just over to the side. And even if you didn't really know anything about equity, but you knew what you wanted schools and teachers to do, you would say, yeah, that's exactly what I want. <laughs> right? That's exactly what I want a teacher to do for students. Oh, look how engaged they are. And they were struggling in this course. And now all of a sudden they're super engaged because of these moves the teacher made. Right now, the reality is they didn't get there by accident. The teachers knew what they were doing. They had an understanding of the reasons why their students might not be engaging in things they could do to help to form those connections and those relationships to themselves and to the material. And the result is, oh, this is exactly what we want, but it didn't happen. The same thing with, you spoke about Jordan, right? And it's the truth and the reality underlying some of the things that can become cliched and educated with, oh, we want more student voice. Like that sounds great until a student tells you something that, that it's a little too close to home. Oh, you know, you got me there. Okay, never mind. And it's not just going through the motions. It's really hearing those students and hearing all of the students and where they're coming from and really committing to acting on it. I think that's an important thing to understand is that the results here are inarguable. <laughs> and what these teachers did, nobody could really argue that that's what they should be doing. Stephen, do you, are there any examples that from that, that through your work that you've kind of seen how it changes their mentality? Because ultimately that's what it's about, right? Is saying, all right, if the students are responding to this, we're, we're on the right track. I do want to say, as far as the teacher stories, that what I felt was important, too, was that the teachers were learning. They didn't have it all in place when they started. And we wanted to, because that's where the readers are, and we wanted to have examples that weren't perfection from the get-go, but a process of getting there. As far as other examples... One of the things we really wanted to do is not only were we multiracial, but we wanted stories from teachers who were of different backgrounds and different styles. And Vanessa got involved with this, but admitted from the beginning that she really didn't know enough and realized that she had to learn more and try more. And so in the book, the story, she's trying something really new with her students and to engage them in, in issues around race, especially for students 
who aren't students of color, it's as important for all of the students to grow in their understanding. And so she had to take the risk of trying something new and designing it as she went. And in that case, it really worked out. On the other hand, when she tried to set up a, a meeting place for fellow teachers, she describes, as readers of the book will see, how she made some mistakes that were very embarrassing to her and that she had she felt terrible about not realizing things that she was saying and doing that turned out hurt, hurtful for somebody else. But she had to take that chance, and she did, and she knows that she's better for it and is beginning to learn that it's not simple. One of the questions we ask a lot of times on this podcast is, if a reader could only read one part of the book, what would you tell them to? And I don't want to ask that one today. And I know that the answer would be read the teacher stories anyhow. But I do think there's a relevant to ask regarding where an educator might self-identify. And I, I think that'll really help our listeners also understand how they might come to the material and start to consider how it begins to synthesize into their practice and transform their practice. I would say for the inex for the person who doesn't feel as experienced mm -hmm. that the racial literacy development framework that Yolanda Celia Ruiz has developed and that we featured in the book is a really important place to begin even for a person who feels like, yeah, I think I'm, I think I know a few things. It's a good place to do that kind of self-check. Where is it that I have a pretty good handle on my own thinking here? And where do I really need to expand? I don't know too many teachers. I can't think of any at all, actually, who wouldn't say that they begin from a place of critical love. That's why we teach. That's why we go into this profession, right? But what is my level of historical knowledge? What is my level of humility? Am, am I humble enough in my own thinking? I think the framework and trying to unpack where one is along that, knowing that it's not sequential, it's not neat, it's not tidy. In communication, we have to put something first, second, third, fourth, but that doesn't mean that Yolanda has shared with us that she really, actually really doesn't necessarily see this as hierarchical, but there's only so many ways you can present information. So I think for somebody to start with that is a really good place to begin. What do you think, team? Yeah, I think so. Although it does depend on who the person is and where yeah. their attitude is. If it's somebody who's really, really skeptical that there's even a problem, I tell them to go look at the index that outlines a half dozen different ways that there is inequity in our school systems. Start there, way back at the end. But that would be for that kind of person. And the person that thinks they know everything should just tattoo critical humility on their forehead or <laughs> where should they go? Because the reality is these practical examples here, even if you are the rare person who's studied everything in the introduction and you've read the full papers, but backwards and forwards, 
Uh, those practical examples are from a variety of different settings and they come from a variety of different angles. And there's something new in there for everyone. And part of the book is the conversations between the authors and understanding that that can be good guidance for somebody who finds that they think they're more similar to one or the other and how, how they might go out and find those collaborators to say, all right, who do I need to be working with on this? Because we're going to do better work together. Yeah, I would say that if you feel like you're pretty advanced, then the conversations might give you some ideas about some areas that you might want to experience some growth. Mm -hmm. And each one of those conversations between the chapters are happen, right? And I think that they would be important for someone who's trying to figure out about the book and where to go and what's this book about. I think the conversations do a good job of also telling the story, our story, and our stories among each other and between each other. That's also a place, as you've mentioned, that I think makes this book different because you get a chance to see our struggle. So knowing the importance of those conversations and the collaboration where we're recording this during a time when there's clearly a lot of pockets, at least, of antagonism toward this kind of work, toward anything that even mentions that this kind of work might be worth checking out. I'm wondering if you have any insights for an educator who's working in one of those spaces. They're working in a district that is removing multicultural books from the libraries. They're working in a place where the word equity is treated like it's a four-letter word. And this is happening at a time when, by the way, we also have a teacher shortage and a, a pipeline that's not exactly robust. As much as I couldn't blame anybody for continuing to persevere in such an environment, we really do need them. With all of that in mind, what would I do if I were in that setting and saying, like, I really want to become more informed about this. I want to do better work. I want to make an impact. I'd like to speak to that. And I know my partners will too. But I had the privilege some years back now of doing working in a Chicago project with schools with a community organizer. And we would drive around to these different schools together. We had a lot of conversations in the car. And I began to realize that she had a whole different vocabulary mm -hmm. about organizing and working with people that I did not know. It was like going back to school. And we incorporated some of this into the book because what it's really about was ways to build alliances and connections and trust with other people and support so that you weren't alone. Because if you stand up in a meeting alone, you are really making yourself vulnerable and you're likely not to have much effect. But if you stand up in the meeting and 50 people behind you are cheering you on, it's a different story in that such setting. And maybe you can't fix everything now, but there are other people out there, teachers, administrators, community members who are going to share your concerns, but nobody's speaking up because they're afraid. Having one-on-one -on -one meetings with people over coffee just to build some trust and maybe even with people who are going to differ from you so that they begin to at least appreciate that you're honest and caring in your views. That's a strategy that we talk about in the book. And I'm just going to do a quick sales 
comment for another project I'm working on for teachers who are looking for this. There's a website called everydayadvocacy.org, and there's an informal group that I've been expanding to address book banning and censorship, and there are strategies in there that can really help people. And we built that into this too. And teachers aren't used to doing this kind of work. I know I wasn't. Really sitting down with other people and building these alliances and connections and building trust so that you have other people behind you when the time comes to actually say, you know what, we have to change this situation. I want to add, Ross, that in addition to what Steve was saying, that sometimes your people might not be in the building. Mm -hmm. That sometimes your people can extend outside of your building, maybe statewide, regionally, or nationally networked that can give you tips about what they did in their own spaces to be able to push ahead and be resilient and persevere in a time when there's book banning, there's a question about African-American history slash literature being used in a classroom and so forth and so on, right? Ethnic studies, your people could be outside of your building, could be some inside your building, but there may be even more that exist outside in a space. And then there are national organizations also have some direction and maybe be able to help us to connect, like the National Council of, Teachers, Council of Teachers of English, National Writing Project, where there's a national group of people who really want to do this work, or any of the equity work that we do in there, and those circles of people who really want to see us persevere and be resilient. And it's not easy. I want to stop here and say it's difficult in these times. And I want to honor every teacher who's out there and every teacher who's trying to go to work every day and make a difference in the lives of students. We know it's not easy, but we also know that there are a group of people that it may not always feel like it, who are with you, who are connected to you, who will push you, who will work with you, who will celebrate you and honor you, even in your most lonely moment when you feel like you're probably by yourself. You're not. Yeah, that's an important message, and particularly in a circumstance where there's whiplash. It's not just that, okay, there's certain things that have been a long slog, and we just haven't made progress at the speed that we'd want. There's a reversal of progress, and there's certain states where educators thought they were here, and now all of a sudden, we're going in the other direction. It's important for them to know how important they are but <laughs> Katie you have more to add yes uh, uh, among the other resources that Steve and Tanya have mentioned we also have a Facebook group that is for racial equity Facebook group and so that is a space that people can request to join where we can continue to have conversation across contexts Tanya's point that your people might or might not be in the classroom, right next door to yours, they might be in a classroom across the country, but we're out there, you know, the people are out there and all we can do to connect to one another, I think is really, really important because teachers deserve the support of their community. Absolutely. 
as we're wrapping up here, I want to go around the horn quickly and to those educators out there listening, no matter where you are, I want to hear from our guests here, in addition to Teaching for Racial Equity, is there one other book that you would recommend? It could be any type, any format, any genre, <laughs> um, but anything that you think will kind of help them in their journey here? Well, it's really hard. I'm looking down at the stack on the floor next to my seat here and thinking, which one? But one that I really love by also from Stenhouse is Matthew Kay's Not Light But Fire, because he's so smart and it seems like he has a photographic memory of classrooms where he's worked with kids who are struggling with conversations about race. And so it's dense, but it's really thoughtful and real. I like Cultivating Genius by Godi Muhammad. I think it's very practical and it has a way of looking at developing curriculum that I think is fresh and authentic. And she has one of the skills, joy. We don't often hear joy as a skill, but I think it's important to acknowledge that she has an unearthing joy that just came out in Scholastic, Um, but she talks about, at least when I speak with her, uh, the importance of joy, which led to the second book and being able to have that in the classroom. We don't want to teach out the joy and the identity of students and them being full in themselves. I think that's important. And then I've also being very interested in the 1619 Project Mm -hmm. uh, and reading that book by Nicole Hannah-Jones. And I've been intrigued by the amount of history and the primary sources in that text. It's it's been something else. Well, my partners have already claimed the books that I would recommend for teachers. But as soon as you asked the question, my, my answer for what do students, what do young people need to read is anything that somebody says is banned (laughs) you know i mean whatever they read find it uh find it go read it because that will help you under you know help you question well why does somebody want me not to know this and find some friends and have a banned book club what's old is new again uh Uh banning is back All right. Well, everybody, well, thank you so much to Tanya, Steve, and Katie for coming on the Authority. Listeners, please find the link below to Teaching for Racial Equity from Stenhouse. You can purchase the book there. There's also some different videos and interviews on the book page that you can learn a little bit more from our authors. Please do subscribe to the Authority for more in-depth author interviews like this or visit thepodcast.network to learn about all of our shows. Everybody, thanks for being here. Thank you. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, and improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com forward slash BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all of these goals. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E.